welcome to the Property Portfolio Podcast with Mark Stokes and Nigel Green. Every week we inspire and guide you towards success in the world of property development, mentorship and fundraising. Before we jump into today's episode, a reminder to join us at equacademy.co.uk where you can gain free access to hundreds of videos and templates to help you on your property development journey. I'm incredibly excited to have the well-renowned Bill Morrow here on my podcast today. So welcome, Bill. Cheers, Mark. I'm, I'm really pumped um, to be here and thank you very much for the opportunity. Absolute pleasure. We're in a lovely hotel at Brooklands in, in Surrey recording this podcast. Uh, you know, a real background of, of pedigree and history and uh, on the subject of history, maybe you could just give us a bit of background on where you came from, Bill. God, that's such a good. Uh, that's nice. Like that? that was good. That was that was nice. It's almost like you said that before. Yeah, I mean, I I did a, a dodgy business studies degree after I found um, that um, Mark and I were just chatting, and, and I said I, I was so stupid. I think boys are stupid at a certain age, and I, I wasn't clever enough to be a doctor, and I wasn't clever enough to be a vet. So I became a dentist because I was clever enough to be that. But as a career choice mechanism, that wasn't particularly good. So I gave that up and then did a business studies degree. Came down, worked for Virgin. I was employee 33 with Richard. Became an accountant and discovered I was really bad at that. Then made the biggest mistake of my life and moved out of that into investment banking. And then I was very lucky, just at chance, happened to sell my business to a Wall Street bank. And um, I retired. And I think... Yeah, I wasn't very good at that either. So yeah, I've just been searching around for something um, something to do. So how old were you when you sold your business and retired for, for the first time? Maybe? Yeah, what was that? 20 years ago. So I was 36, 36 when I made my millions, which is just far. It's just far too young. I think, I think there's something about guys as well. I mean, guys are just so immature. I'm still immature. 56. I'm still not um, um, the, the fully formed article, but certainly at that age, it's just, uh, I don't think you're fully formed. I don't think you've really got your values together. So it, it was it was difficult to make the money. And I think along the road, or even having, having made the money, then I made so many mistakes when I actually had the money and just classically wasted it on resources and, uh, and nonsense things and, and assets that I really, really didn't need and depreciated very, very quickly. So, yeah, oh, it's, 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 been a, it's been an interesting journey. Your education background, take, take me back to, to that point. Was that, would you say, a traditional? No, I, I was very privileged. So my parents sent me to um, one of these posh Scottish schools then I went to um, posh Edinburgh University and it was, what's the word I'm looking for, where they um, just force you to force you to pass the exams, hothouse you. So it was very much a hothousing thing. So I don't think I'm naturally uh, book learning intelligent, but thanks to my parents, it looks like I am. I'm quite intuitive, I think. And I'm quite good at quickly looking at different scenarios and coming up with often the right one. But I think in, in, in especially in business, that served me quite well. Because often, even if you take the wrong choice, it's better to make the wrong choice than, than dilly-dally about um, absolutely no choice. Because everything's learning. You know, So if it worked out successfully, then that's great. And that's learning. If it hadn't worked out successfully, well, that's great. And that's learning. And I think, you know, that, that's very much my kind of motto. I think I uh, totally agree with that. Um, the modern system, and in fact, society at large still doesn't recognise failure as being a, being a positive part of, of one's growth. No, we see that with our American cousins where looking at the world of investment, what they would say is that if you haven't failed yet, they kind of want you to have failed so that you're not going to fail on their watch after they've invested in you. Whereas in almost every other country in the world, and I'm really fascinated by failure because it's one of the, when we move into a new country, say Thailand, Singapore, the fear of failure often holds people back so that if you've made a dreadful mistake in any Asian country, that's really society holds that against you. And what that means is that then it's very difficult to be innovative or it's very difficult to stand out the sort of tall poppy syndrome 
like it's always the tall poppies that the people that stand out are the ones that get um, knocked down. And, you know, it's really hard to be set up your own business, to be entrepreneurial, however you want to phrase it, if you are not accepting that you're going to make mistakes and that life's not going to work as well as you thought it was going to. That's uh, that waiting for perfection before you start, that procrastinating on version 20 of a business plan and you haven't even mm. stepped outside of your door. So, so that's been, has that been a hallmark of many of your business decisions? Oh, no, every one of them. Every one of them. So when we set up Angels Den, it's 10 years old this year, we couldn't take money on the site and the angels couldn't see the deals on the site. But we just went ahead and launched it and um, the press loved it. Um, nobody noticed. And we got it done. Whereas, you know, I, I, I love that point. I think if we'd waited until it was ready, we'd, pro- <laughs> we'd probably be six months old. Because we're still not ready. You know, 10 years later, we're learning every day. But it's there's a real sexual divide there as well. And I see that across the world. But, but say in the UK, where guys, male entrepreneurs, just sort of tend to dive in, maybe because they're a little bit stupid. But I think you have to be a little bit stupid to be an entrepreneur. Whereas women entrepreneurs really want to prepare. They really want to get it right. They, they don't want to fail. They don't want to let people down. They don't want to look um, silly whatever. And it's one of the, one of my bugbears is just the, the small number of female entrepreneurs that there are out there. And I think that's, it, it is that fear of failure. It's that, that fear of letting people down, letting themselves down, not getting it absolutely right. And, you know, I, I think it's, a, it comes from a, a, a school system, a societal system where people don't want to um, stand out. And, you know, I kind of worry about this next generation who, um, to stereotype, are, you know, really just looking at Instagram and um, and looking at the number of photographs they take and taking, you know, 14 photographs. They're only like my daughters, so looking at 14 photographs before they actually post one that gets the, the most excellent pout. But actually, my daughters now move beyond that. And so actually what they do is they post the one that makes them look most ridiculous. And I, I really celebrate that. Because I think that's 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 reality, and I think you know there's a real sort of dissonance between what the real world's about and an Instagram world or a world where you watch Dragon's Den and or The Apprentice, and heaven forbid you actually start to think that that is the real world. And you know the, the horrible truth about entrepreneurship, young entrepreneurship, old entrepreneurship, is it's bloody hard work, incredibly hard work. It's not an easy option. Often go people go, you know, oh, I haven't managed to get a job in a bank, so I'll become an entrepreneur. What should I do? And I see that 10 times a day. And whilst I kind of understand that, it misses the point altogether. And I think it's, you know, it, it's not just a career choice. It's a career choice for, for I think everybody could, could embark on it, but not that many people are going to be worldly successful. You were discussing earlier on before we started, weren't we, about society tends to embrace averageness and mediocrity mm. rather than um, celebrate differentiation and individual talents that reside within people. Mm. Uh, and you must have you know, employed many, many people in your various business, you must have seen some, some real talent that may have gone to waste in the past, but actually in the right environment really cultivate a real mm. hidden talent that are unlocking it. We've got this really weird thing in Angel's Den where we'll employ someone to do job A. And then if they're not very good at it, what we tend to do is then ask them or see what it is that they are really good at. What is it that they are actually really passionate about? And then guess what? We get them to do that and get somebody else in to do the job that they should have done. And the net result isn't failure for, for my company. It's, it's a very positive thing because there's nothing better than seeing somebody actually working on something that they're passionate about and really good at and and that's that's where that's where excellence comes from in the company but it's you know it's it's difficult to engender that so it's difficult to actually get that across to people that it's okay that you know it's not the end of the world that you know you're you're not a great telephone salesperson but i couldn't help but notice that you picked up um you can look at these business plans and you can pick out the nuggets from that so hey listen why not um do that or you know, work in one of our other offices or do this or do that or look at property or look at this or 
And it's about it's about finding the right person with the right attitude. And I think I think it's all about attitude. I think it's it's about well, it's partly about attitude, partly about passion. You know, it's not necessarily we we recruited our first person last month who had made the decision not to go to university. So he could have gone to university and he said, you know what, listen, I hope, I hope you don't hold this against me, but I've decided not to do that. And I just want to get out there and um, get some real world experience. And I almost had tears in my eyes because that, that's absolutely spot on. You know, I think the value of a university education, he says slightly controversially, is diminishing over time. And I think as a, as a business decision, in my humble opinion, getting a degree that so many other people have got and paying 50, 60,000 pounds, being 50, 60,000 pounds in debt to have that privilege. I'm not sure that's a great business decision. And I know I'm wrong. And, you know, I'm, I get beaten up about it um, um, quite a lot. There's much more to going to university than just getting the book learning. It's all about, you know, learning how to cook and whatever. But you could probably do that in the Patagonian rainforest or in South Island, New Zealand. Or, you know, if you really want to get a degree, then, you know, Harvard and MIT that I do a lot of work with, the vast majority of their degrees are available free online for you to access. And, you know, so don't tell me it's about the education. It's probably not. It's just that you want to get drunk. But seriously, spending 50 or 60,000 pounds, you know, I could see within that guy the fact um, that he was, he got it, that he was almost, on, well, he was entrepreneurial. It was a decision that he had made and he was living a dying bar. Well, I absolutely love that. And that, that's really topical for us and, and really resonates in, in our group. And one of our directors' sons wanted to do a degree, Tom wanted to do a degree in quantity Spain but also had a few reservations and had a real passion for what we do, how we invest in our businesses. So he's now doing a day release course, still fulfilling his dream of getting a mm. surveying degree, but he's also getting a degree in life. Mm. Four days working with us, embedded in the business, mm. a real win, and, and to the government are paying for the, for the uh, tuition fees, which is absolutely fantastic for us as a business really in the value of society and what really resonated with what you just said there was identifying with not just what somebody is good at. It's not about being good at something but you don't enjoy it. Mm. Good and matching with a passion. That is a phenomenal cocktail, isn't it? Oh, that's right. No, I, I could have been many things but none of them I particularly wanted to do. So, you know, I hated accountancy. I totally hated investment banking. The investment bank totally hated me. But, you know, I sold my soul for money and I made lots of money and, and, and it gave me lots of opportunity. But it wasn't, you know, it wasn't until I was, well, late 30s, almost into my 40s, that I was fortunate enough to discover my passion. And, you know, I, I know that I'm privileged and, uh, uh, and I've had an amazing education and, and, and I've been very lucky. But at the same time, I think it's about spotting those opportunities when they come along. I think that's a, that's a big thing. And then parenting is so much a part of that. To actually inject into the parenting um, equation the fact that it's okay for your child to be different, for your child to wear um, um, a wolf's hat to school every day, or for your little boy to dress up as a ballerina, or for your girl to play rugby, or whatever it is. It's, it's, it's society is actually saying that. But for me as a parent, it's very much about what makes them happy. And then going back to what we were just chatting about, I think you can only really be happy in life should you find your passion. And, you know, so few people that I meet even understand that. And it's not, a, it's not an incredibly difficult concept. People just go, oh, I'll just get a job, you know, in a big company and then I'll be happy. And then before you know it, um, um, you're 60 and... Uh, reality sets in in those passing years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... You started your own business, very successful, and sold that business. Could you, could you take us back and uh, recall maybe the first first time entrepreneurship, or first experiences of entrepreneurship, and what those early signs were? Yeah, yeah. So I was a very bad accountant, as, as, as I've said. But here's the, here's the first sign of entrepreneurship. So double entry bookkeeping, which is something very boring in accountancy. So I developed my own system of double entry bookkeeping because um, the one that the ancient Egyptians and Sumerians had come up with 1,800 years ago was nowhere good enough for me. 
So I developed this and, and it really worked and it seemed really logical for me. Um, sadly, nobody else picked up on it, but nonetheless, I did that. And whilst I was at Virgin, I was the only person that ever wore a suit. And whilst I was in investment banking, I wore jeans and a t-shirt because I, I just didn't fit in. The bank hated me in the investment banking, but the clients loved me because I got stuff done and I could see it from their perspective. But both of those are sort of corny answers. And I suppose, you know, the the traditional sort of question of when I first saw entrepreneurship, you know, I didn't have a lemonade stall or I didn't sell my kids, my school mates, some sweeties at school. What I did do, once again, I'm I'm very stupid because it, it took me nearly 40 years to discover that I had a disease and that disease was entrepreneurship. And I think it's almost an oxymoron to have an entrepreneurial accountant. You almost cannot be an accountant and be an entrepreneur. And it's about taking risks. It's about being okay with uncertainty. You know, I, I just didn't care that the balance sheet didn't balance. It was kind of close enough. Now, that's, that's stupidity. But at the same time, I, I, could, I could extrapolate forward facts based on a few little bits of information. And then in the bank, I really wasn't interested in the detail of where the bank wanted to go or the rules and regulations. I, I, I hated that sort of nonsense. I rebelled against it. But what I did do was I was able to listen to what people wanted and then use the bank's resources to actually help them get to that. And so I, I discovered, and I didn't really have the language, which is why you know I really love the likes of this podcast. It's, it's about talking to younger people and telling them about the disease of entrepreneurship and that you, know, you may well have it yourself. And please don't worry about it should you, should you think differently from everybody else because it's probably just entrepreneurship. And actually, that's okay. And it's like dyslexia. We do a lot of work with MIT to try and find out what it is that makes um, successful entrepreneurs. And um, um, number three in that list is dyslexia. Now, lots of people, you know, end up with dyslexia and go, oh my God, this is dreadful. And once again, it's different and I'm, I'm different in another way. And yes, you are different, but embrace that because, you know, um, my ex-boss, Mr. Branson, famously dyslexic. But the reason he was such a successful entrepreneur was that he could see the world in a very different way, a very different way in a way that other people wouldn't see. That's almost the definition of entrepreneurship, to actually see opportunity where others see nothing. Yeah, I think that's incredible. That power of anticipation to be able to see where the world could go, and not necessarily where it's going. What was the, uh, the phrase from, quote from Henry Ford, wasn't it? If I'd asked people what they wanted, they'd have said a faster horse. Um, I mean, that'd be incredible. Did you, did you say 33rd employee, yeah. Richard Branson? Mm. So he was still one of the one of the finest global innovators in his very formative years. There must have been some incredible lessons and nuggets that you took from from those those years into into later life. And I missed those off. And so one year he didn't get paid. But the, the, the worst mistake I ever saw, and once again, back to our conversation, the biggest le- well, one of the biggest lessons I ever learned, I think, was we had very little cash left in the bank. And I was buying, buying dollars and selling pounds So um, 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 with the bank. And I got the numbers the wrong way around. And I remember Mike to this day, Mike at Barclays Bank, I said, can I do this? And I want to pay that. And he said, are you sure? I went, yeah. He went, yep, sold. No, no, Mike, no, 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 no. He went, Bill, we don't ask people, are you sure? It, it's gone, it's done. The money's out of your account already. Is it, was That was a mistake then, obviously. I did say, are you sure? I was going, oh. Penny, Richard's PA, phones up and said, Richard, we'd very much like to see you in the morning, in his houseboat. Honestly, Mark, I didn't sleep a wink. Not a wink. Not a wink. And um, I walked into Richard's office and um, he said, please tell me what you did. And I said, well, because we've got these assets over here in in dollars and we had too much sterling, I was looking to um, actually just 
secure them all against that thing. So I, I was I was just trying to use my initiative and um, I got the numbers completely and utterly the wrong way around. And he went, um, well done. I said, what? He said, look, he said, in a day, he said, I make a thousand decisions. He said, 700 of them are right, 300 of them are wrong. Every day we move forward with the 700. But if you're not making decisions, you're not moving forward. He said, now get out of my office, swore at me. He said, tell me, look me in the eye and tell me that you've learned that lesson. I went, honestly, I will never, it's a jack guy. And um, I was so grateful that he didn't sack me. No, so grateful that he didn't shout at me and scream at me and, 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 and you know, because he'd be quite within his rights because, well, for all the reasons I've just mentioned, but it was just such a, a valuable lesson. There's no point screaming at me because the, the, the thing was done. My intentions were pure. I was stupid. There's no mitigating against that. But what he understood was that it's about making decisions. And he, he had got it well and truly wrong. And for Virgin, it was an expensive mistake. And for me, it was an amazing lesson. Amazing lesson. And I'm sure that mistake was never made again. Oh, no. Untold greater decisions were made off the back of it. Yeah. yeah, I'd like to think so. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting how society values failure. We've both got two daughters, mm. and I've got two sons as well, and, and seeing how they react to failure and, um, and also that social pressure to conform. I know from my 20, 25, 26 years in corporate life, I often refer to it as seeing people wrapped in cling film. They're, their very souls weren't allowed to, to breathe. Um, and coming into entrepreneurship, you like to keep yourself dry, but you've swapped the cling film for the Gore-Tex, really. It's more of a breathable commodity. But our inner talents belong as part of our personality and to rather than to level the peaks and make a bland organisation. I like to think some of these self-starting organisations through entrepreneurship have really seized on the, the individual personalities of their founders mm. Have you seen that with some of the personalities that you've worked with, the personality you have, and how you've been able to spot those exceptional yeah. talents? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a conversation call. No, no, I mean, I, I, listen, absolutely. It's that, it's that old cliche about, um, and, you know, I think after 10 years of running Angel's Den and, and 200,000 business plans reviewed, it is that cliche thing, but, but, but just because it's a cliche doesn't mean it's not true. It's totally all about the people. And, you know, controversially, once again, I would almost say that um, it's, it's all about the people. You know, I think, I think you can have the most amazing idea, but if the, you know, we've got some deals at the moment, they're amazing ideas, but the people are unpleasant and they keep on alienating um, the investors and they're not answering the investors or they're rude to the investors or they don't have the people skills or, you know, they don't make eye contact, they don't shake hands, they don't give them the business cards, they dress funny, they alienate people even though the business is awesome. They don't have the life skills to be able to relate to people who are going to give them money, but much more important than that, they're going to give their time and their energy and their mentorship to them. Now, for these people, it's all about the people. And it's, you know, it's such a sad cliche that I think it, I think it gets lost. But, you know, I think the greatest quality that any entrepreneur can have is self-awareness. To actually know that you're pretty awesome, pretty good at that, that, and that. For guys especially, it's incredibly difficult to go, but do you know what? I'm really bad at this. I mean, you know, even, I think by the time you get to 40 and 50, experience and life have taught you that um, you're bad at those things. And so, you know, there's a lot of evidence, empirical evidence to actually prove it. But, you know, if you're just not interested in numbers, and who is, says the accountant, I'm not interested in numbers. I mean, who does the numbers in my company? Not me. I barely even look at them. I'm not interested in numbers, so I get somebody else who's better at it than I. I'm not particularly good at selling, so we've got people that are better at selling. You know, I could take the marketing to such an extent, but then I've got experts in who are so much better than um, I am. And it's it starts with the self-awareness. It starts with the understanding that you're not particularly good at these things, and that's okay. 
because I, you know, I, I, I like your point that your introduction into, into that your seg into that uh, into this particular thing. It's about the kids these days and believing that um, either you know the, the, they came seventeenth in the race and they still get a medal because you know everyone's everyone's a winner in the society. I think everybody can be a winner, but it's also okay to not be good at things because the sad truth is that even though the Cardassians are wonderful, wonderful people, they're probably pretty bad at other things and they get other people to do these things for them. And I think the role models that people look up to these days are, I don't think they serve them particularly well. And I think it's very much about having that gap analysis, seeing what you're not good at. And then, as you more eloquently said, Mark, it's about finding people around you who fit in with that, who you get on with, but also supplement the skills that you've got. Wow, you know that that would be that would be incredible, and I think you know that, that for a young entrepreneur, that's one of the most difficult things to understand and implement. You see the rising stars that are great at everything, but that'll only get them so far. You know, if it, when we see an entrepreneur who believes that he can do it all himself, we know that he's going to fail. We just know that he's going to fail. That's spent a lifetime in global infrastructure uh, and construction, and. Should we say humility wasn't at the top of the personal traits list uh, in, in that industry? But I, personally, I, I believe um, humility is one of the most, most seasoning and powerful business skills that anybody can have. And I think you put that a lot better than I ever could. Um, you know, understanding and accepting that you're not going to be perfect at everything. And finding people that are a whole lot better mm-hmm. at it than you. Yeah, humility. You've mentioned Angels Den a, a couple of times, an incredibly successful network, which is now in how many countries? Ten countries. Could you just give us a, give, a, give our audience a bit of background for those who haven't? And I'm sure there aren't many who haven't, but uh, for those who haven't. No, no, sure. So, so what um, Angels Den is, is uh, a, a company that's kind of like Dragon's Den on the internet, but it's with nice people rather than them. It's a way of companies are looking for money, they give up a stake in their business, some of their equity in return for cash. So say I would buy a 10% stake in that business and I would give them £100,000 sort of thing. And I think we're now on the 27th iteration of our original business plan. And I think our success is built on the huge number of mistakes that we have made over the years. It's just phenomenal how one small company can make so many mistakes. But going back to the, you know, sort of like the buying dollars and selling sterling exercise, if you don't learn, then you don't deserve to be in business. And I think it's kind of that Darwinian way of actually doing it. And over time, you know, I think nine years ago, we set up in Singapore, eight years ago in Hong Kong, we're right across the Middle East. We're sponsored by the Qatari government. We're in Kuwait, Abu Dhabi, Dubai. We've got two offices in Germany, a whole bunch of offices in Mexico, blah, 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 worldwide. But the beautiful thing about it is that if we make a mistake, say, in our Frankfurt office one night, the next night we don't make that mistake again in our London office at a pitch event. Or if something wonderful happens in our Hong Kong, um, then we can actually take that across to any of the other countries that we're looking at. So it's it's that it, it's still small enough to be nimble, and it's a very simple concept. People pitch their idea, and we find people who can give them money, but not just the money. And I think you know that took us nearly three years to figure out that it's not what young entrepreneurs, what old entrepreneurs, what every entrepreneur needs is not money, not just to give them money, and especially young entrepreneurs. They need mentoring, they need the business experience, and they need the business contacts that come with the money. And I think going back to self-awareness or just just understanding that, you know, it's not just about scoring the money because you probably won't wonder what to do with it unless you think you know it all already or unless you think you can do it all yourself, in which case you are bound to fail. And it's it's the ones that understand that that then come and say, look, I need... I need £10,000, but I also need experience in how to move into Germany. And I need someone to help us with our tech moving up to 3.0. Very rare to get entrepreneurs with that self-awareness. Very, very rare to find young entrepreneurs with that level of understanding of really what business is all about. And you mentioned young entrepreneurs. They're clearly very relevant for for today. Is there a demographic demographic? What proportion would be in the young category? How have you become 
Yeah, it depends how you define it. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of going below the age of 25 um, sort of thing. So it's, it's people, for, for me, young entrepreneurs, it's people that maybe still are, are at university. And I think there's a number of positives and there's a number of negatives. And I'll be honest, I'm, I'm not sure what I think. The negatives are that um, what kills most entrepreneurial ventures is what they don't know they don't know. And by definition, um, younger entrepreneurs don't know a lot. And I think um, that's not necessarily such a good thing. The plus side is that um, they don't know that. And so they, they, they throw themselves at it with so much energy and so much panache that um, often, just by the sheer force of will, they find out the answer or they, they, they get a, somebody on board who can actually advise them about the best way forward. And so, you know, we see some amazing ventures. Indeed, the very first deal we ever funded at Angel's Den 10 years ago, and um, it was two kids that were still at school, 17 and 18, and they had um, 50 Cent, who um, um, is a rap artist. And so they phoned up 50 Cent because they didn't know they couldn't, and said, would you like to play in London, Mr. 50 Cent? And he went, yeah. They went, oh, okay. He went, oh, I want a $50,000 deposit. No, pounds. They went, okay, thank you. Goodbye, Mr. 50 Cent. Then they phoned up the O2 and said, we've got 50 Cent. Do you want him to come and play? They went, wow, yeah. They went, but we need a 50,000 pound deposit. So they're going, okay, thank you very much put the phone down and went, oh God, what are we going to do now? So they needed a hundred thousand pounds to pay for um, 50 cent, um, 50,000 to pay for the O2 for the, the cancellation booking thing. And so they went and raised um, 120,000 pounds. And the first table that they sat down at, it's a, it's a speed funding mechanism. So there's like eight people pitching at night, eight tables, one, two, three investors behind each table. They sat down at the first table and the guys were going, oh, I have no idea what rap music is, never mind who that is, so I'm not interested. The second one went, what age are you guys? It's like, you know, nothing. I'm, I'm just not going to, um, I'm not even interested. Thank you very much. That's, that's great. I just don't think you know what, what the business is about. The third table, the guy went, wow, you guys are really on this. This is, this is really enterprising. I love the fact that you've gone and done it. There you go. Here's um, 120,000 pounds. They're going, oh, thank you very much. And for, for Angel's Den, this was an amazing thing. So this was our first pitch event. These were the, the first deal that actually got funded, but sitting at the table was an FT journalist. Now, of course, part of the reason I think the guy cut the check for 120000 was there was an FT journalist sitting next to him um, and his name got in the press and uh, it, was, it was great. So, like, that's a success. But, of course, when it came to it, they got ripped off because there are 17 revenue-generating things from having a concert. So the O2 kept all the alcohol. Um, sales for the night, whereas they should have got a cut for that. 50 Cent kept all the merchandising for the night. Of course, they should have got a cut for that. Hospitality boxes, they should have got a cut for that. They didn't know what they didn't know. How could they? How could they possibly know? But you know what? They all had a fantastic night and lost money. And was that a success? Was that a failure? I'll let you guys figure that out in your head. They didn't put any money up. The guy that put £120,000 in lost it all, but he had a fantastic night. Got to hang out with 50 Cent, brought you know 40 of his mates along, got his name in the press. Uh, he probably wouldn't say I was a success, but of course he learned from that. And the, the, the learning that those two entrepreneurs could take mm-hmm. onto the other ventures, again, not making those same mistakes twice. So across all the countries that your organisation has, has, has served, has entrepreneurship changed in each one of those cultures? Because there's quite a one diversity. Is entrepreneurship the same? Yeah. No, no, absolutely not. No. So I would say in English speaking or American educated countries, entrepreneurship is a much higher level. But entrepreneurship is, is such a complex thing. It's, it's such a term that I, I'm, not, I'm not even sure I particularly like the term, but let's use it because it's a product of so many things. So say in Singapore, in Singapore, there's a huge, um, everybody wants to fit in. So if you fail, much once again, as, as we've been discussing, then that's a really, really bad thing. So people don't take chances. They don't take risks and they don't tend to be innovative. So right from the start, that makes entrepreneurship really, really difficult. 
then there's a lot of state support. So you know, the universities are all paid for, they're very big in education, but then you've got the most amazing education will often pay for you to go abroad and have an education. The very last thing you want to do is then come home again and go, mother, father, I've had this amazing education, but I'm going to throw all that away. I'm going to become an entrepreneur. No, you're not. So you know, there's a societal thing. Also, their parents haven't themselves been what you would call traditionally entrepreneurial. Now, they are entrepreneurial because, you know, there's a lot of in Hong Kong, Singapore, everyone's an entrepreneur. Well, India, like probably the most entrepreneurial country in the world in terms of like, you know, even the street servers are entrepreneurial. They're, they'll do anything for a dime, a buck. They're, they're all selling stuff by the side of the road incredibly entrepreneurial, but there's things that hold it back. So the distinction between, say, um, India, which is a marketplace we've never cracked, and Pakistan, very Pakistan, very highly educated population, incredibly um, entrepreneurial, but with corruption, it really holds it back. So there's no capital because nobody pays tax in these countries. So no one's going to say, oh, here's 120,000. And the authorities are going to go, whoa, Mr. Stokes, can I just ask, where did you get that money from? Because the vast majority of people wouldn't be able to tell you where they got the money from. So it's difficult to actually get the things funded. So there's almost a sense of cruelty in some countries. We set up in Qatar six years ago, and the government spent a million dollars on the opening evening of the Angel Network. A million dollars. Now remember, this is an alcohol-free country. And the support was absolutely amazing. But the one thing that Qatar has got right is that education is free. So if you want to go to Stanford and Harvard and Oxford and Cambridge, the government will pay for you to go. And then once again, you come back home and go, I'm going to throw all that away. I don't want to become that. Or because of Qatarization, Shell has to employ 30% of its employees. BP have to be Qataris. Every major company that comes in there has to employ people. But there's only 260,000 Qataris in Qatar. They've all got £100,000 jobs. They don't have to do any work. They're all candy crush masters of the universe sitting there. They can't get sacked. Or they could take a chance and set up their own business. Why would you want to do that? Why would they do that? Whereas in Germany, a big entrepreneurial um, push, once again, a very innovative country, especially around uh, Munich, where um, automotives, as we sit here in Brooklyn, um, is, is big, but actually innovation there, actually seeing how you can make money out of things. Now, German entrepreneurs are stereotypically um, incredibly detailed. You know, their business plans will be, you know, 100 pages long. But guess what? The investors, the German investors want to see 100 pages, which is great. Mexico, a very highly educated population again. They're very, their northern neighbor is the most entrepreneurial um, um, country in the world, um, in, in, in America. And they are entrepreneurial. They really get it done. They really value entrepreneurship and they want to better themselves. Because often there's a very close correlation between if an economy is failing, like Britain, you see more and more people taking their chances to become entrepreneurs. Where if the economy is going fantastic, like Qatar, people go, nah, do you know what? I don't really need to. I don't need to do that. So it's, there's, there's a, a very strong correlation between how the macroeconomics of the actual country, their um, um, sense of um, risk, the educational burden that's um, being put upon them, and what success looks like for them, especially against their parents. The parents are often the genesis of any entrepreneurial spark for any entrepreneur, any entrepreneur. You look at Zuckerberg, you look at Steve Jobs, you look at Elon Musk. They all had pushy, pushy parents that knew what it was that well, they didn't know what they wanted, but they knew that it wasn't the traditional educational route that they wanted their kids to go down. Whereas in lots of Middle Eastern countries, you know, sort of two generations ago, they had nothing, absolutely nothing before oil came along. So it's that, you know, it's that parental sort of push that's missing. There's many different schools there. We were talking about this earlier, weren't we? Is it right for a parent to give a leg up? to the kids or not necessarily a parent, a grandparent, um, you know, an advisor to give a, a child a, a leg up. And there's various different views of that. My personal view is, you know, I certainly don't want my children looking at me when they're 35 in 20 years' time saying, Dad, could you have taught me that? And, and I know in my heart of hearts, I really could have taught them that. You know, I, I never forgive myself. Um, so personally, I, I have no problem giving giving our younger generation a leg up as long as 
it creates the impact and, and sears something into their DNA for the future. Mm. And I, I guess over the uh, uh, your, your passion for helping youngsters, but also equality and diversity and, uh, across those cultures, um, there are many different challenges to to bringing that to bear. Yeah, there are, and I, I think I think in my own inimitable style, I think you and I get on so well together, Mark, that um, we're kind of at the other end of the scale. So you're the soft, um, nice, I'm going to give you um, a leg up. I'm going to um, help you um, in, in nice language. Whereas I come at it from the other angle that tells people just how hard it is and that it's not an easy option and that um, it's going to be some of the best days of your life. But it's also going to be some of the worst days of your life. If you value having uh, regular vacations, if you want to take bank holidays off, do not become an entrepreneur. Do not do it unless you want to work Saturday and Sunday for at least the first three or four years. When we set up Angels Den, we went four years without paying ourselves. And why did we do that? Because we knew that the money was better served in the company rather than sitting in our bank accounts. I'm not sure it's even an extreme example, but it's just an example. And I think that's very much my style. I'll tell people how hard it is. And, you know, people don't like that. Uh, um, but hey, and it's tough. And I, and I think if you don't like me telling them as it is, they're going to find entrepreneurship itself or enterprise or just the big wide world out there pretty nasty. So, you know, I'm, I'm quite into horror stories. <laughs> but, but, but no, that's not true. I, I'm, I'm slightly, I'm, I'm paraphrasing myself. I, I think... It's the gritty reality. Of what it's, it it's the gritty reality and, and just the brutal honesty. And, and I think, you know, once again, you can watch The Apprentice and go, oh, wow, that must be really, really brilliant. Really? Really you'd want to work for him? I mean, really think about what you're saying. Just seems ridiculous to actually want to do that. But, you know, I think it's really glamorous as well at the moment. It's kind of sexy to be an entrepreneur. And I want to kind of squeeze that and just show them in the accelerators and the pain and just how difficult it is. And then, you know, you get into your 20s and 30s and then, you know, mental health issues are really increasing, especially in London, especially in Shoreditch. You know, people are are pushing themselves so hard because they have to, because it, it is a competitive world. And I think it is difficult. It's difficult to get, you know, your, your first sales. The most difficult thing you, you'll probably ever do as an entrepreneur is to get that first sale who isn't your mum, somebody who actually wants to buy your product. And it's it's so easy for me, a fool like me, to go, that's all you need to do is, is to sell something. But, you know, you have to have the product made, you have to have it delivered, you have to have it fulfilled, you have to have logistics behind it, you have to have all the suppliers actually lined up that are making all the parts, you have to employ staff. It's incredibly difficult. But is it worth it? Oh my Lord, yes. And I think the beautiful thing about people that are older than young entrepreneurs, you and I, (laughs) is that is that we've both been through that big corporate thing, you know, 20, 30 years. Our average investor has spent 28 and a half years being an investor. Sorry, working in a corporate. I'm spent 28 and a half years. But then they realize just how rubbish it is working for somebody else and how rich the other people are getting while they're killing themselves, literally working for somebody else. And, you know, that my view on it is quite simple, that that it's it's a very risky occupation, but profit is the reward that accrues to the entrepreneur. Now, you know, young entrepreneurs are many years away from making a profit, and it is amazing fun. And you do set your own guidelines. And you, you know, if you if you want to take three weeks off and you can go and do it, but at the same time, it's difficult. It's very difficult, but it's an amazing option if you get it right. Amazing. We've focused on entrepreneurs uh, a lot and, and have done in this podcast. But over the last 10 years with Angel's Den, have there been any unexpected findings or dawnings from maybe from the investor's perspective and how entrepreneurs and investors work together? How has that dynamic evolved? Mm. So we've touched on the point that um, when we started off, I thought it was all about giving companies money. And as I say, it took me three years to figure out that it's the money is, is comes in number four. First and foremost, you need the guidance, the mentorship that comes with the money. Then you need the experience that comes from the 28 and a half years of working in a dull corporate. Then you need the contacts. And young entrepreneurs often dismiss the contacts. But say you're in motorsport 
and I could introduce you to the managing director of Mercedes-Benz, would that be interesting to you? You go, wow, you know, I play golf with them every week. Wow, that would be amazing. That's the kind of that's the kind of stuff that you know is really going to make the difference between a company living and dying. And once again, it comes back to the the self awareness of knowing what it is that you don't know, or knowing what it is that you should know. I think that's the that's the weirdness of it. And then, from an investor's perspective, it took us almost four years to figure out that um, just because you're rich doesn't necessarily mean you should be an investor or you can be an investor. So just because you've made your money in retail or construction or whatever, here's five companies. Can you tell me how to value them? Because that's kind of important. No, I've no idea. Or, you know, what does the dragon tag clause in the shareholders agreement look like? I don't even know what a shareholders agreement should look like. Never mind individual clauses. Or, you know, what's the tax situation on this? So what should the discount rate be on a convertible loan? No, I've, I, oh, you've lost me. I have no idea what you're talking about. And actually, it took us four years to figure out that why should you? Just because you've been fortunate in one particular niche. I think, once again, television and sort of um, whatever has made it seem really easy that you just put money into companies and you just you make money from it. And it's, you know, there's nothing about it. But as with anything that's kind of simple, it's incredibly complicated, immensely complicated. And there's so much in it. So now we train each one of our investors. So we're in Goldman Sachs and Merrill Lynch every month. We train 20 or 30 of their staff how to be investors. And you touched on the point as well. You, you, made, you, you used the word um, um, earlier. It's about humility. So we kind of look for humility in our entrepreneurs in as much as if they ever say we know it all, then we chuck them out. But also we, we want and need humility from the investors because the moment the investor thinks he knows everything, it's going to be very difficult for him to actually be able to help the companies, especially when he doesn't know. So especially, you know, we, we see some companies who've been really badly advised, really badly mentored. They started off at 100 and then the investors have been with them three years and you know, they're coming in at 70. They've actually gone down the way because the guy didn't know. It was expected that because he was older and richer, he should know what um, was going on. And of course, whose fault is that? that? That was my fault. It was my fault that I didn't think it through. So now we, we look at the very best deals and we try and match not the business experience, but essentially... The gap analysis that the entrepreneur says, you know, I need someone that's going to help me buy motor parts. So we then find somebody who's got money, but also motor part experience and puts them together with the contacts and the experience. And, the, and I think that that's where our success comes from. But it's, it's from making huge mistakes. Yeah, I love it. Absolutely love it. So how do we, have you got any thoughts on how we, you used the word earlier on role models, how do we create role models and, and access to mentoring for our younger generation. I'm talking about pre, pre-adolescence. So it could be in their 8, 10, 12, 14, 16. How do they gain access outside of the traditional family unit and the traditional education system? And in your, your travels, have you seen anything that works, works really quite well and inspiring so that children have got that life of choice and, and abundance and uh, contribution? when they become 18? I think it's very difficult. And much like entrepreneurship across the world is very different, I think the experience of being a child across the world is very different. So I take my, I take my kids to India quite a lot. And um, the second last time we were there, we went and sat with a family in their house. So we were honoured to be taken into their house. And it was an earth floor and it was um, a third of the size of this hotel room and six of them actually slept in there. So in terms of they had no material possessions, they had nothing. Their education was um, actually quite poor. I mean, the, the girls didn't go to school. The boys went to school four days a week. It was very difficult for them to get mentoring. The difficulty, though, was that the kids were so happy, so incredibly happy. And, you know, my girls felt so guilty that they had their iPads with them and their iPhones and their earbuds and their whatever. And these kids didn't even know these things were. And they were so happy. They were happy with a small ball and whatever. And I think in lots of Asian countries and in the Indias and Pakistans, 
the experience comes from older people and and especially from grandparents. And it's the grandparents who are often the role models. You see that in Hong Kong, you see it in Singapore, you see it in Thailand. The older people are revered rather than this country, we pack them off to old folks' homes. It's Sweden and Denmark, where I am next week, who have this model where old folk like me go and live on university campuses. So they stay with the students and the students are living next door to older folk. So it keeps the young people slightly more um, level. The older folk are people that help out. But here's the thing. They get together three, four times a week and they just chat. And they go, you know, you know, I might be, you know, old now, but, you know, I used to run a business and I used to do this and I used to do that. And what the universities in Sweden and Denmark report, much like the Asian countries with the older folk, is that it's those mentor um, uh, moments that are almost more valuable than the book learning. Because somebody can actually go, they can give it to you straight. They can actually say, you know, it's, it's not a theoretical it's like, you know, this happened to me, that that actually happened to me because I didn't sign this piece of paper or, you know, I, I expanded too quickly or I didn't look after the cash and thus the company was lost or some big company came along and stole it because I didn't have my IP or my a trademark or a patent or whatever it was. And it's for, for the students who were going, oh, Lord, I'm sitting next to old people. It then became the best thing that's ever happened to them. And, you know, I, I really see a big you know, old people in this country really are on their own. And I, and I see that as a, it's a sadness for society, but especially for the younger generation who aren't generally exposed to those people. And so I think, you know, that would be a, I also spent a lot of time in Chile and, um, and Colombia. Once again, old folk tend to live with the family, their, their mothers. No, that's not true. It's the father's parents would come and stay with them, and then the daughter looks after the. Um, yeah, that's right. But they're they're all in that one unit, and once again, the kids um, just say that you know actually the relationship with the grandparents is the most pivotal um, of um, of all. Yeah, huge value in those role models, both in the family unit and and outside. So if we're we're looking at. Um, advice that we can give, and I guess there's a, a number of uh, different uh, parts of the audience, those that want to be a young entrepreneur and those that want to raise a young entrepreneur. Have you got any advice on, firstly, if we take um, those that maybe want to be a young entrepreneur in their, their early ages, what, what, what advice would you give them? I think there's two things, two things in, in particular. So, so one of the things that um, maybe gets me down more than, than it should be and if I was a compassionate Christian person, I'd go, well, that's really nice. People tend to be entrepreneurial about things, pain that they've experienced in their own lives. So, you know, university students often find I've come up with an app that tells you where to get the cheapest pint or um, school kids will come up with something in their own personal experience. And I think that's great. But the problem with that is that there's so many other people actually doing that. And then I go back to our, our, our conversation about dyslexia, whereas the dyslexic young entrepreneurs that I hang out with, sure, they experience the same things, but they see different solutions and they also see different problems. And, and I think if everybody's setting up the same app and doing the same thing, it's going to be super, super competitive. And then you're going to have to spend a very large sum of money to market yourself and differentiate yourself from everybody else. So you know, my, my thinking in, in the one extent is, is think outside the box don't just do what everybody else is doing, but also do some research and do some research to see, you know, has somebody thought of this idea in Canada? Have they done it in Canada? Have they been successful? If they have been successful, what does that mean? Does that mean you shouldn't do it? You know, Google was the 14th search engine that came along. It wasn't number one. It almost took the best of the bits. So is there something you can tell from Canadian companies that are actually thinking there? Or there are, then another way of looking at it is it's just like, is thinking slightly outside of that box, is, is looking at it from a different angle. Imagine you were dyslexic <laughs> um, and really just think of it in a weird sort of way and, and then see what it's about. But the second point, I think, and, and once again, this is really difficult, especially for young entrepreneurs, is the only way it's going to be successful, no matter how good it is, no matter how clever you are, if you're not passionate about it, 
you know, it is going to be a three-year, four-year, five-year journey. So say, you know, you, you want to, you've uh, come up with an app that uh, um, allows you to um, groom your pet using your iPhone. It's going to be really cool. And that's, that's, that's going to, yeah, this is world-leading. You've got the technology. But be aware that in the second year and the third year and the fourth year and the fifth year, you are going to get fed up with cats. There's going to be cats everywhere you look. There's going to be cat hair everywhere you look. You might be making money. You might be able to get the people on board, but you truly have to be, you know, if you're a dog person, don't set up the app. Even if you see a gap in the marketplace, because the killer is that passion. And I'll, I'll make no um, apologies for, for making this point again. If you're not going to work weekends and you're not going to work bank holidays, it's probably not going to work. It really does demand that level of it. You know, we, we often see um, people that, you know, it's five o'clock in the evening now, so I'd better start packing up my home. Look, if you've got all the work done that you need to get done, then that's fantastic. But experience probably tells me you have to be there to eight o'clock, nine o'clock. You just have to be to get all the stuff done if you're going to be successful in a competitive environment. So once again, thinking outside the box, is nobody else in this industry? Why not? What was nobody else thought of this? Which, in which case, that could be good. And am, am I contradicting myself? I could be, but you really have to evaluate. Has anybody in Turkey thought of this? Nobody else in the world has thought of an app that helps clean your cat. Well, dude, you know, just think about it. I mean, the, why? Why is that? What would the problems be? And then it's never too early to ask for advice. It's not a weakness. In fact, it's a huge strength. Huge strengths. So the companies that get funded at Angels Den are the ones that go, I'm awesome at blah, 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 but I'm really bad at this. And I think one of the great examples of that is um, Levi Roots and his Reggae Reggae Sauce. Check out Levi Roots and Fatboy Slim doing the Angels Den song. It's on YouTube. Do it now. No, actually, listen to the rest of this, then do it now. But Levi Roots was a wonderful example of how he messed up. His passion was the sauce that his granny had made. But he, when he pitched on Dragon's Den, he got the decimal point wrong to two places and he got liters mixed up with the gallons. Two of the angels said they were out before he remembered he had a contract with Sainsbury's. For the first time ever, they tried to come back into again. By the time the rules of the, the, the dreadful program are that if you're out, then you're out. But why did people want to invest in him? He couldn't have messed it up any worse. He couldn't have exposed his weaknesses anymore. That's why they loved him. He was obviously really, really bad at math. They were awesome at math. They could help him. He was a marketing genius. It was plain to see. Did he put it like that? No. Was it plain to see? Yes. Imagine as a young entrepreneur, you could go, you know what? I'm awesome at marketing, but I'm really bad at numbers. Could you help me with the numbers? Go to your local accountant and go, dude, I, you know, take me on as a charity project or I'll clean the bins for a week, but just help me with my business plan. Help me work through the numbers. Tell me what I should do. Give me a spreadsheet. Show me a, a Google Doc that's going to actually help me. Incredibly powerful. And if I ask the same question in a slightly different way, what advice would you give parents, and we're both parents, and how would you advise parents, grandparents, in supporting the inspiration of their human entrepreneurs? For me, the essence of being a parent is to allow your children to be happy at whatever they want to be. And I think the responsibility for that uh, tired cliche comes in opening their eyes to all of the opportunity that is out there. So not everybody wants to be an, an entrepreneur. Not everybody wants to be a professional footballer. Um, not everybody wants to be a um, band member in a boy band. But opening their eyes to the fact that actually if you wanted to play in a band, you know what, that opportunity is there. And here's how you want to do it, is actually spotting the talent. And with, with kids, often they're lazy. And so it's actually about bringing them on. So I, you know, I, I beat my children regularly to play the piano and to do music and whatever. And it's only now they're starting to go, oh, do you know what, actually, I'm starting to get it now. But it was, you know, years of tears. Now, do they want to do it professionally? No. And, and, and that's great. But it's about actually opening their eyes to it. With setting up a business, it's, once again, it's, there's so much that they don't know. But there's going to be, your, as parents and grandparents, in terms of supporting that side of things, you'll have a wide nexus of people out there 
who will be able to support it. You know, you're in the golf club and there will be a lawyer and that lawyer can help with the, you know, some thoughts and some paperwork and, and whatever, actually just setting up the company. You will, everybody knows an accountant because they're the boring ones sitting in the corner. It's about mobilizing all of the people that you know to actually help them in a friendly sort of way. It's about encouraging your child. It's about, and once again, as we were discussing earlier, it's about if you have a hundred pounds in the bank, given the um, precarious state of the British economy at the moment, at the end of the year, the real value of your hundred pounds has gone down at the end of the year. So maybe you could do something else with it. But Going back to the conversation about how to be a, 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 young, a young entrepreneur, it's about encouraging their passion. It's about finding their passion. And what I've noticed with, with lots of parents is often the parents will spot the passion before the kids will. The kids will just go, you know, I'm just really good at um, coding. Isn't everybody really good at coding? You go, no, no, that's incredible that you do that. And then finding classes for them. And something I'm really passionate about is, you know, girls in tech, girls coding, you know, it's less than 1% of all the tech jobs that are there. But to think as older people, we don't really understand what these tech jobs are, but they are the future. And I think any child that can code is going to be a master of the universe. You know, Zuckerberg um, codes, Steve Job could code, uh, Michael Dell could code. It's like doing um, accountancy. It's an amazing basis. You know, as a, I'm a prime example of, you don't want to become an accountant, but it just tells you everything you need to know. So especially girls in tech, get them coding. Send them to special girls in coding camp, that sort of thing. And will that help them? Because it just helps them develop a wider world view than YouTube or whatever. You know, take them to art galleries, Take them out, show them, um, show them weird entrepreneurial programs because uh, there's lots, there's lots of them there. And I think the place of role models as well. There's lots of very talented young entrepreneurs actually out there at the moment who are more than happy to share their experiences. So I was on, I was on radio two weeks ago. And it was, um, they had a young entrepreneur from Australia and a young entrepreneur from America. And I was supposed to be sort of like in between, but they just chatted to each other. It was just like the most exciting thing for them to hear somebody else who'd also been successful. And, you know, the big problem that she had was that um, when they went in to talk to advisors, the advisors would talk to the parents and she'd be sitting there going, hi, hello. <laughs> and the mom and dad mom and dad had to go, no, actually, she's the entrepreneur. This is the one that's got the idea. She's the one that's taking the risk. Please address all your um, things to her. And it's it's an adult world, but it's not that complicated. It really, oh, sorry, it's, it's hugely complicated. But I think unlike many things, it can be presented in a, in a simple sort of way. And I think it's, you know, it's, it's difficult to, to get children interested in entrepreneurship when they don't truly understand what it is. But I suppose, you know, as I said before, for me, it's about taking a risk and then living and dying on those decisions and always learning, you know, just be learning about it. And so whether or not you're selling lemonade at school or selling kids, other kids candies, and then making a markup and then investing that into something else, any business that you can get into. And so for parents and for grandparents, it's about expanding that knowledge, taking them out to different things, spotting what um, their passions are and introducing your nexus of um, people to actually help them help them fulfill their dreams. Uh, it's been absolutely fascinating and I feel as I could uh, sit here and, and talk for, for hours to come. The experience that you've brought to, to our audience today will be incredibly valuable for, for many years to come and, and this podcast after all is about making a difference. And I feel as though people would not just want to listen to this podcast, they'd also want to find out more about you. Is there any area where they can go in social media to, to understand more and follow the great work you're doing? Sadly, there is. Yes. Um, so, I mean, so first and foremost, you know, any young entrepreneur out there, or indeed any parent, I'm really happy to tell you the mistakes I've made. <laughs> and I, I'm just bill at angelsden.com. And then I'm at Bill Morrow on Twitter. And then I'm on Bill Morrow at Facebook. And um, Facebook's the most sort of jovial side. But uh, yeah, listen, I mean, I'm happy to help. 
am I just talking cliches all afternoon? But, you know, quite seriously, the way that Britain is going and Brexit and whatever, if we don't get younger people involved in enterprise and actually helping themselves, I do worry because, you know, most jobs in this country, 90 something percent of jobs are in companies that employ one, two, three, four people. That's it. Four people. And, you know, there's an entrepreneur behind every one of them. And parents can make a huge difference. Thank you for listening to the Property Portfolio podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode and that it inspired you on the next leg of your journey. If you've got any questions or comments, why not reach out to us at our Facebook page, Equa Academy. Also, don't forget to register for free access to hundreds of property development videos and templates over at equaacademy.co.uk and we'll see you in next week's episode. Thank you.